starting off in Matthew chapter 25. And so you can follow along in the bulletin with us if, if you don't have a, a Bible with you. But hear, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took a flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We need your spirit to teach each one of us uh, how these truths apply to each one of our lives. So be... Uh, an encouragement to us, and um, strengthen our faith, draw us near to our Savior. Um, uh, we love you. We present our minds before you that you might teach us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So our uh, topic this morning is an important topic, I think, living in our culture, in modern age. It's the topic of perseverance. Or as uh, Eugene Peterson and Friedrich Nietzsche put it, a long obedience in the same direction. That's what perseverance is, is a long obedience in the same direction. And that vision for the Christian life, you may, maybe you have that vision for what the Christian life is about, a long obedience in, in the same direction, is in many ways antithetical to the way, uh, to much of what we expect of, of Americans kind of living in the modern age. As Americans, we want things quickly. You know, I want my... Amazon package in two days. I will pay to have it in two days. Every package I want in two days. And if my internet is, you know, taking 10 seconds to load, that is, I need a new computer. This thing is taking too long. And you may not even be aware of it, but all the instantness of our culture and our expectations for instantness um, are training your expectations and my expectations about what it means to be a Christian. We want change, we want maturity, we want experiences, and we want them quickly and we want them regularly. We want instant power. Um, but I'll just tell you, that does not sound like the description of the Christian life the Bible gives us. The Bible says being a Christian is like being a pilgrim. You know, you're in this foreign land, you're in a wilderness, and you're on this long, often difficult, hard journey going towards a promised land towards the wedding feast, this passage says. The, the time of rest and the time of celebration. You need a long obedience in the same direction. We are exiles in a foreign land. We are not at home here. And uh, the ultimate thing that will reveal who really belongs to Jesus is those who persevere, those who endure to the end. The people that are the true followers of Jesus are people of perseverance. 
And so it's a question for you. How many of you, when you think of being a Christian, that's what you're imagining for the, your life ahead? Even when you became a Christian or your expectations now as a Christian? Is it that God is going to give me a blessed life and if he doesn't give me a blessed life, I'm going to be frustrated with him? Or is your expectation, my being a Christian means I'm a pilgrim. I'm on a long, hard journey. I need to be patient. I need to be steadfast. I need to, be, to endure. I need to have courage. I need to be strong and trust in God's promises. And I need to be patient. Is that your expectation for the Christian life? Well, um, this passage, Jesus gives a parable about perseverance. And he says that Christians are like these ten virgins, or like bridesmaids, who are waiting for a groom who's going to come into a wedding feast. And the groom, of course, is like Jesus, who's going to be coming back one day to set all things right in the world, establish his kingdom. And it's going to be like a great wedding feast. And uh, these ten bridesmaids, it turns out, of the ten bridesmaids, five of them are prepared for the groom to come back. They have this store of oil for them. And five of them are not prepared. Um, five of them are ready for a long night that is ahead of them, and five of them weren't. As we look at this passage together, we're going to think about perseverance, and I want to just draw out three insights about perseverance that we see from this passage. This is what they are. Is that perseverance demands preparation, Perseverance demands piety, and perseverance demands promise. Three things, preparation, piety, and promise. And these are important lessons for us as Christians living in the modern world, okay? Modern America. So here we go. First one, perseverance demands preparation. I'm just going to, let me just read the main part of this parable to you again. This is what it says, verse 1. Then the, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was this cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Now this picture, this is actually a fairly standard picture of the, in the practice of traditional Palestinian weddings, where you would have a procession of kind of bridesmaids who uh, would go uh, with the groom into a wedding feast, and often these bridesmaids would escort the bride, maybe um, to the groom's house, um, as torchbearers. And so, you know, often, like, maybe a, a poor village, these torches would look, look like a stick that, where you had, you know, cloth wrapped around it that had been dipped in oil and set on fire. And these torches um, would go out in about 15 minutes. They would not last long. So you had to be prepared, to, you know, if you're going to keep your light shining, keep it, you know, going all the way through the party, not spoil the party, you're going to have to have preparations in place. And the defining quality of the wise virgins was that they were prepared with extra oil to light their lamps. And there is preparation, there is a thoughtfulness and a care for the night that's ahead that is essential if you're going to be a person who's going to persevere through the difficulty of living in this life and living in this world. There's a thoughtfulness. And what does that mean for us? It means that perseverance does not happen through drifting. You know, many of us live our Christian life kind of drifting along just by accident. Whatever kind of accidentally is going to happen 
there has to be some intentionality to our life if we are going to be people who are going to persevere. And, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I, I read a book by Dallas Willard. It's called Renovation of the Heart. It was a really uh, helpful book. And uh, at that time, I was wrestling with a question in our church. Because as a church, one of our hopes as a church is that this is a place of grace. You know, you don't have to work to prove yourself to God. You're embraced freely. You're loved freely by God, not by your works, but because of his grace and because of his love. And that's something we need to communicate over and over as a church. And we want to believe in our hearts and we want to share with one another. But, you know, there's a question for me of how do you be a church that really emphasizes grace and also emphasizes the rigors of discipleship? You know, there's this rigorous call to be this, this pilgrim, this disciple in this world, this stranger in this land, living in uh, this long obedience. How do grace and, and rigor go together? And so uh, his book was really profound for me. I had to read it really slowly. And he says that at least one thing is that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to have a long obedience in the same direction, then... Um, you, you have to have a vision for that kind of life. You have to have internalized that that's what your life is going to be about. You can see that life ahead of you. That's what you expect that God is going to give to you. But he says having that vision is not enough. And this is, let me just read you this, this quote. This is what he says. Still, more than vision is required, and especially there is required an intention. Projects of personal transformation rarely, if ever, succeed by accident drift, or imposition. Imposition, you know, if someone tries to force you to change, you're not going to change. And it says, indeed, where accident, drift, and imposition dominate, as they usually do, quite frankly, in the lives of professing Christians, very little of any human value transpires. Effective action has to involve order, subordination, and progression developing from inside of the personality. And what Willard is saying here is that you will not live a persevering life simply by drift or by accident. Now, when I read his book, the one critique I had of his book is that actually many of the things that happen for good, that God does for good in our life, we didn't plan. You know, we didn't have an order for it. You know, God just did something in your life that you didn't ask for, and it was one of the most important things that happened to you. Of course, so God, a picture of God's sovereign control of our growth and development as disciples is kind of missing from his book. But what he's saying is that the fact that God's grace alone, it's a God's grace alone that changes me. It does not mean that I'm inactive in the process. It doesn't mean that I'm not thoughtful about the process, about what God is going to be doing in my life. And what Jesus says in this parable, if you are going to be a disciple who is going to persevere to the end, you must be prepared. So, you know, one way, you know, I think we could think of this is if we think of this life is like a journey, you know, we're in this wilderness going toward the promised land. You need some kind of roadmap. You need a path and a plan that you are going to walk down that is leading you to that destination. It's going to lead you to the end that you can walk along in this path of obedience. And so what is that path? And so this is the second thing that we learn in this passage is not only that perseverance demands uh, preparation, but also that perseverance demands piety. I was really excited to use that word. I know piety is a kind of old-fashioned word. Some of you might not like that word. You know, you think it's kind of a religious-sounding word. But it's, it's a word that's, that really should be um, kind of rediscovered in our generation. You know, we, in our generation, we talk a lot about kind of 
spirituality and community. We, we always want to be in community with other people. We want to share community. It's a good thing. I think the reason we talk probably so much about community is because we're so bad at it. And so we're always talking about it because we're so desperately hungry for it. And so that's why, that's why we put so much emphasis on it. But this has tended to de-emphasize personal piety as an essential part of the Christian life. And by piety, I mean a personal, disciplined pursuit of holiness. A personal, disciplined pursuit of holiness. How many of you have that as a vision for part of your Christian life? Structured, thoughtful pursuit of Christ being formed in you. And you know, Jesus' great discourse... Uh, that I mentioned earlier in, this, in, in Matthew on piety is the Sermon on the Mount, his first discourse. And this parable ends with this little judgment scene that's actually an allusion back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, you might, this might ring, uh, uh, sound familiar to you. Look at what it says in verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Of course, this chilling statement of Jesus saying, I do not know you, which, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount ends with a very similar scene. Let me read it to you. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, recognize that Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So you can see these parallels. There's both this Lord, Lord, which it, Lord, Lord means this is someone who's a Christian who calls on the name of Jesus. Actually, they're pretty emotional and vocal about their relationship to Jesus. And actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, these are people who are doing ministry. He says, you know, didn't we prophesy in your name? Aren't we these great teachers and know all this theology and this wisdom and we taught people? And we cast out demons in your name? I mean, we had this life-changing ministry that set people free from sin and from evil. These are people who have these very visible ministries. And Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's possible to have a very public Christian life and to not know Christ. And I think one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount is saying is that Jesus' priorities for us is not that we have this popular ministry and we do all these things that really wow people, but the Sermon on the Mount tells us what his priorities are. And what does the Sermon on the Mount say? It starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we have a sense of spiritual poverty, of humility, that we come to God empty-handed, that I'm a pilgrim who needs to be fed by God and strengthened by Him, and that I'm weak. It's the first sign of piety. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, uh, chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you read it, it's all about forgiveness and reconciliation as being one of the most important things in our life. You know, he says, if you're at church, you're at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. And it's this thing that if you come to church and you remember, you know, I got some beef with so-and-so over there, and we, you know, I haven't talked to them in a while. He says, call him up. You got to go have coffee with him. You sit down with him, and you say, hey, listen, I want to work this out. I want to know what's... I want to talk it out. And you know what? I know most of you having that conversation with whoever you're having conflict with, that's a hard thing. And Jesus says, my spirit will be with you. Those, that desire for forgiveness, for reconciliation, is a mark of piety. That's what a pious person does. 
And then, and then chapter 6, if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, it's really about prayer and our relationship to God. We, you know, the, your Father knows your prayers in secret, what you do in secret. And he says, you don't have to have these long prayers. You know, the pagans go on and on with their prayers. You just have these short prayers that are sincere because your Father already knows what you need. But tell your Father in secret, and he listens to you. And cast your worries on him, and don't worry and don't excite. This is what piety is. And so... Um, this is an essential part of perseverance. And I know that for many of you, that kind of piety, if, for example, a regular prayer life is very difficult, is very unnatural. And the thing you don't know is that actually everyone in the room, it's very difficult for. I, I find prayer to be extremely difficult. I know it's my job to pray, and I know you pay me to pray and stuff like that, but I, it's still hard for me, the confession. And, um, and actually, one of the things I've had to do in the last year or so is I, I've started to memorize psalms simply because I don't know what to say to God when I'm on my knees. And some of you are like, I don't even have words. I have to memorize psalms just so I have something to say. It's very hard. And yet, shouldn't that be the greatest desire and pursuit? If there's one thing I'm going to learn in this life, there's one skill, it is going to be speaking to God. That's the one skill that I would learn. The people who will persevere are those who take seriously the call to put the words of Jesus into practice in their lives. Now, for some of you, that may be, you know, you might be hearing you say, you know, there was a time in my life where I really did have spiritual practices of piety as a real center part of my life. I kind of lost that. You know, I don't read the Bible anymore. I, I don't have times of, uh, you know, prayer or confession, confessing my sin to others or to God. I don't have any of those things. And this sermon, this is, a, this is just an invitation to return to that and to say, how did, that, how did that work? What place did they have? Why has it been lost from your life? And to, and to repent and say, you know what? If I'm going to be a person who perseveres and endures to the end, I need those things as my roadmap to guide me to the end. But for some of you, you might say, you know, I've never read the Bible. I just can't do it. Every time I've tried to do it, I open the Bible. It's just, you know, nothing comes to me. God is not speaking to me. I'm pretty sure he's not there. I, I just don't know how to do it. It's very discouraging. And if that's you, I would say then you need a coach. You need to find someone to teach you to do that. And find someone who does do that and say, what exactly do you do? Someone who's patient, you go along with you, gentle, and say, you know, it's forgiving. God is very forgiving. He knows we're bumbling along, learning to pray. And I'll say, you know, when I first became a, a, a Christian, um, I, you know, I've shared with many of you, I, I, I was a high school dropout. I'd read one book in my life because my mom forced me one summer to read it. I absolutely hated reading. I'm the last person that you expect to read a big, fat book like a Bible. And, uh, and yet, um, you know, I was in a lot of trouble. I got sent away by my parents to school. And I was in a punk band before that, and the leader of the punk band had become a Christian. And he said, you know, I became a Christian. You should get a Bible, and you should try reading it. And, I mean, I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And, he said, and I said, okay, well, what do I read? He said, well, you read Matthew. Okay, I'll read that. And then he said, you know, Acts has got all these miracles in it. You should read that. You probably like that. I mean, he's finding something that I'd enjoy, I guess. So I was like, okay, I'll read the book of the miracles. And then he's like, Genesis is when the world started. That's pretty important. I guess you should read that. And, but he was a coach, you know, and he just told me the things to do. And then I had another friend who was a Christian. I prayed with him. And I heard the words that he used. And, you know you know, dear Lord and all that stuff. I didn't know any of that. And so, uh, so I learned from him, you need a coach. And when you have a coach, 
what happens is something that can be very burdensome. You know, for some of you, even me saying, you need to have a pious life, could be this burden of like, the pastor says I gotta do all these things. You know, but when you have a coach, it all of a sudden becomes an experience of grace. It's someone who's teaching me a skill of walking with God. And so saying, I need a coach, and this is the most important pursuit of my life, is to be able to walk with the Lord and to persevere through the end, because this is going to be a difficult life. And the freedom from the difficulty is not until you're at the wedding feast. It's the nighttime right now, and we're waiting. Now, up to this point, you might hear all that I'm saying and say, well, it sounds like perseverance is really a task for us to do, right? You need to prepare. You need to be pious. Um, but, you know, there are many verses in the Bible that des- describe perseverance very differently. So, for example, this is from John chapter 10. This is another place what Jesus says. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Hear that? He says, I have a hold of you, and no one's going to snatch you out. How are you going to persevere? It's because i got a hold of you. And then he says, not only do I have a hold of you, he says, but my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus got a hold of you. God's got a hold of you. And you're going to try to run away at times. And he, they're going to keep their hold on you. He's a good shepherd. He chases down the sheep or trying to wander away. And also the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Uh, this is Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God who began the work in you is going to see it to completion. Perseverance is ultimately God's work and not ours. It is a work he does in us. It's a work he does for us. So that's the third thing that we learn about perseverance in this passage. Not only perseverance demands preparation and piety, but lastly, that perseverance demands promise. The promise of God to stay with us. And you'll notice this passage that um, both the wise and the foolish versions are sleeping. Usually being asleep is not a good thing in the Bible. In this passage, it is. Look at what it says, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, this is kind of interesting because if, if you were here a few weeks ago when we were looking at the passage right before this, Jesus says that his second coming is going to be like a thief coming in the night. And what does he tell you to do? Stay awake, right? Don't go to sleep. You've got to watch for the thief. It's coming. And so if that's the only parable you had is that, you know, Jesus is coming like a thief, you would think that life is like this paranoia. Oh, he's coming. I'm, I'm, I ever, am I going to be good enough for him? Am, you know, he's going to come and get me. It's going to be this experience of fear. And so he complements that parable of the thief with this one, with the wise bridesmaids who are excited for the wedding feast. They got their oil and their lamp. They're prepared, and they take a nap. <laughs> they're secure. They're excited. They want to be rested up for when the, you know, the feast comes and they can stay up late and, you know, and, and eat food and, and, and party. And so, uh, um, and so there's a sense of security here. They are secure. And so the question is, which is it? What is perseverance? Is it you toughing it out? Fearfully kind of vigilant about your life? Or is God going to hold on to you and so you can rest in his care? Which one is perseverance about? Well, the answer comes together, of course, in Jesus. Jesus is the one who toughed it out. He's the one who persevered and endured in the midst of persecution and hardship and was faithful for us on our behalf. 
And in him, when I am in Christ, I become a persevering one. I'm a one who takes courage and is strong and is steadfast and is immovable. I become that person in Jesus. And he holds on to me and he makes me like him as one who endures to the end. And so this making of, you know, this uh, fulfillment of our perseverance, the promise of our per- perseverance in Jesus is described best in Hebrews. And I want to just read this passage to you to close. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See how he says your life is a race. It's a path. It is a journey. And it's going to be one that's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. That's what a race is. You know, your body and your muscles are hurting and it takes endurance. But he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started our faith. He drew us to God. He's the one who will complete it. He will finish the work. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured. He persevered persevered for us, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So perseverance demands preparation. It demands piety. But ultimately, it is because of God's promise in Jesus that he will see us to the end. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, pray for my brothers and sisters here who hear these words about perseverance, who are facing many pains and difficulties and trials that I likely know nothing of or that anyone else maybe knows about. And Lord, as you give us this challenging word that our life is the life of the pilgrim, a long obedience in the same direction, we pray that the promise of the gospel, Jesus, who endured for us on the cross, would he be our shepherd, walk with us, and that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we would fear no evil, for he is with us. His rod and his staff would comfort us. So Lord, make us a persevering people that we would be strong and courageous and endure to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.